Welcome to the Palladium Podcast, episode 14. I'm your host, Jonah Bennett. And as always, I'm joined by Wolf Tyvey. Hey. And this week, we're joined by Hanu Raya Niemi, a New York Times published science fiction writer and biotech startup founder. He's currently the CEO of Helix Nano, which works on developing novel therapeutic modalities for cancer. Hanu, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, great to be here. All right, so the first question, obviously, uh, we wanted to talk about sci-fi this episode. Uh, first of all, you're a, you know, you're a sci-fi author. Uh, could you just introduce your work a bit to, to get us started so that the audience has a bit of background? Absolutely. So um, I am probably best known uh, for uh, a trilogy of novels, uh, starting with The Quantum Thief and its sequels, The Fractal Prince and The Causal Angel, which are... Uh, far future um, science fiction space opera adventures set in a post-human solar system where humanity has diverged into various forms, both digital and uh, physical and biological, and um, which feature a futuristic uh, gentleman thief, a sort of post-human incarnation of Arsene Lupin, uh, who is looking for, for his lost memories. And more recently, I've... Um, uh, published a, a novel called Summerland, which is uh, uh, quite a different uh, kind of book. It's uh, an alternate history uh, spy novel set in uh, A1938, but not our 1938, uh, featuring spy games between the British Empire and Soviet Union, but in a world where the afterlife uh, has been proven to be real and can be contacted via technological means. And the main, main character is looking for a mole in her spy organization who is actually already dead um and uh, i've also written so, so those are two very different modes uh far far future um speculation about where might humanity go in the long run and what what it means for uh, our identities and looking at uh, taking a look at uh possible alternate histories how things could have gone very differently if certain inventions had been made or if certain theories of physics in the 19th century had turned out to be real. And then more recently, I've written quite a few near future short stories, including, including the one uh, that you mentioned uh, uh, came out in New York Times recently, uh, plus a few, few uh, in publications like Slate and MIT Technology Review. And I also have a short story collection called Invisible Planets that also features a few short stories uh, set in the near future, and as, as well as stories uh, utilizing elements from Finnish mythology, which is which is uh, where where I'm originally from, oh, uh, Finland. So uh, writing actually in my in my second language. I only only started speaking English when I uh, went to Cambridge, UK, uh, to study when I was 19. So I, you mentioned like a relatively diverse set of uh, settings, at least. Um, I'm curious whether there's some like uniting thread through your work or some larger, some set of themes that you like to explore or that you think are important to explore through science fiction. I think there, there is, uh, I think one, um, one mode or one theme that I, that I found quite close to my heart is some kind of personal transformation or metamorphosis. Um, it is, <laughs> it is perhaps a very universal theme in fiction, uh, in, in fiction, uh, the heart of heart of every fictional story usually is some kind of change, um, but I I, I, did, I do uh, enjoy thinking about um, technologically or or 
otherwise enabled transformations of, of identity and, and memory and, and personality. So, uh, for example, uh, in, in the Quantum Thief books, the main character uh, has radically edited his own memories in the past, right. in the past to, to um, uh, implement quite, a, quite an elaborate heist and um, uh, <laughs> also has taken on many identities, uh, many, many physical, physical forms over the course of his life. So, so those kinds of themes I, I, I do find uh, very compelling. Um, and I think science fiction is quite a natural mode for, for looking at what does it mean to be human, um, especially if we, if we can start manipulating um, the things we traditionally see as, as, as being the core of humanity technologically um and um so 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 i think that thread runs through a lot of my work um i, I did mention finnish mythology that does i, I do right. i do like to include some kind of uh element of finishness in pretty much everything i write there's uh, even if it's in a little background uh role but but i but i think um there is there's a certain uh Nordic or, or Finnish outlook that I probably have, uh, which which I think hmm. comes through uh, in all of my work some way. So, so you mentioned uh, your work Summerland and the fact that it's an alternative history. So at Palladium, we do a lot of, uh, you know, research and, and theory work. And I'm curious, um, in the case of Summerland, what did the research process look like um, for, for coming up with that alternative history? So the research was really fun, actually. Uh, so that, that combined uh, multiple elements. So, so there, was, um, uh, there was the spy piece, which was fun. Uh, I was, a friend introduced me to a uh, former CIA officer um, who had done uh, quite a lot of right. uh, um, intelligence asset recruitment in mysterious locations that he did not disclose, but uh, was uh, quite open to uh, talking about how um, one uh, makes contact with and develops uh, intelligence assets who, who, um, who, who, who then turn into, into sources of information um, and, and what, what an intimate process it actually is, how much it is based on uh, this slow accumulation of, of trust and uh, um, a personal connection, which make, makes for, for great fiction, obviously. And then, then there was the, uh, I, I wasn't that familiar with uh, spy uh, history or history of intelligence services. So I read up uh, quite a bit on um, the early British intelligence operations in uh, revolutionary Russia, uh, on, on, the, on the Cambridge Five, the famous double agents mm -hmm, in, um, classic. in, in um, uh, MI5, MI6, Kim Philby and, and all, all, the, all, the, all their their uh, contemporaries, uh, but probably the most interesting uh, research thread uh, was the history of spiritualism and its connections to 19th century physics. Um, and that the starting point for that was, was a very, very interesting book called uh, The uh, Immortalization Commission by a British philosopher called John Gray, which um, uh, is a, uh, gives a very interesting account of um, how Darwinism radically altered the intellectual landscape uh, in the mid 19th century. And one of the, so, so Darwin came up with this very dangerous idea that, um, you know, we've evolved from, from animals and we have not been created by, by a creator, uh, yeah. but, but this is all part of, part of this natural ongoing process uh, and uh, humanity is no different from 
the rest of the rest of the animals. And um, the what was interesting is that um, the especially the Victorian British intellectuals were intellectually honest to to take this argument very seriously. Uh, you you might have expected them to to reject it on on basis of religion alone, but they didn't. Um, but the the challenge then was how could they reconcile this with religion and especially ethics, because religion was the basis of Victorian ethics and morality. So so if religion is not correct, then there is no basis for for ethics and morality, and and it's all sort of anarchy and and free for all and anarchism, of course, was something that they were uh, quite worried about, and. Um, so how to prevent society from descending into chaos? What what sort of different different uh, foundation could be found for morality? And uh, one thing they sort of clung to was that if there is an afterlife, if there there is some kind of kind of afterlife uh, that is shaped by our behavior in in the while while we're, we're still alive, then um, that that might still offer uh, a more scientific basis for for morality. So they set out to to look for. Uh, a scientific foundation uh, for the for the afterlife, and there was there was this whole uh, group of people, in, including uh, inventors like uh, Sir William Crookes and and uh, um, uh, Sir Oliver Lodge, um, uh, who all belonged to to this uh, very illustrious uh, society called the Society for for Psychic Research, who that that actually collected scientific reports uh, about ghosts and uh, and other 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 psychic phenomena and um, uh, members of the group also started to come up with uh, theories around uh, what, what where where could the afterlife be found and um, what was uh, quite uh, surprising was that uh, the direction they turned to was the fourth dimension so so another uh, and this is also it's it's interesting because it's also a, the fourth dimension in the Victorian era was also a social dimension. So um, there's a very famous book uh, by E.M. Abbott called Flatland, which you're right. very familiar yeah. with. So so it's it's uh, so it's uh, a story set a fable set in this two dimensional world uh, where a Mr. Square uh, lives a peaceful existence until he encounters a Mr. Spear who comes from the third dimension uh, and shatters Mr. Square's illusions about how the world actually works. And Mr. Sphere can do seemingly uh, impossible things. He can he can grow and shrink and disappear and seemingly uh, uh, is um, sort of omniscient. He, he can see everything that's going on, uh, uh, even, even behind closed walls. And that's, of course, because he floats above the the, the plane of flatland and he can he can move through it and right. um, Mr. Square only sees the cross section of of Mr. Sphere as he as he moves through flatland and um, so um, there was this uh, and and all the, all the ideas in Abbott's story actually came from a um, thinker called Charles Howard Hinton who uh, proposed that um, the fourth dimension is real we can actually reach it. We can move move in that direction uh, by visualizing it. We, we can. Uh, he he trained himself to visualize four dimensional objects using this quite an elaborate geometric geometrical system framework that he came up with. And um, but maybe the maybe the interesting thing, especially in the context of this podcast, is that it was also uh, a way of escaping from the conventional Victorian social norms. So uh, right. so Hinton was also. Uh, rebelling against uh, 
the strictures of marriage. He was a, he was a bigamist. He, 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 he wanted to emancipate women. There was, there was, uh, he, 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 he felt that the way, and, and actually there's traces of that also in both in his writings and Flatland on how rigidly hierarchical the, and arbitrary the, the uh, Flatland society is where, you know, the more angles you have, the, the, the sort of, if you're a polyhedron, the more, more, cor more, more, more uh, uh, angles, more, more, more uh, corners you have, the, the higher your social status. And, um, um, so, so Hinton very much wanted to to escape that, and the fourth dimension was a way way of speculating about the fourth dimension was a way of doing that in a very, very literal way. And um, uh, he also proposed that the um, the afterlife might exist in the in the fourth dimension. And there was a uh, there was there's, there's a long story I could also tell about how the physicists got into it, like Lord Kelvin, who then proposed that uh, um, uh, atoms were were uh, um, not in this four in this four dimensional ether and so on, but uh, what was really fascinating to me was that um, fields that we now consider now set quite separate, like ethics, morality, religion, uh, science, uh, um, uh, all all those got sort of entangled in this in this Victorian thinking, and it was people like Hinton and people like Sir Oliver Lodge, who was a major figure in the uh, uh, Society of Psychic Research and one of the inventors of radio wanted to build these grand systems of the world that explained everything. So, so you had to, had to find a way to, to um, have a scientific basis for morality, scientific basis for religion and, and um, fit all those pieces together. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. So, it, a mm. lot of this, uh, like these, this grappling with, with Darwinism and um, physics and all, all the things that they were working with at that time, like, and mixing that up with morality it seems really weird from the modern perspective, like from sort of from our perspective, it's like, oh, well, like we kind of just take for granted a, a certain view of these things that they're not related uh, that way. And but it, it's like clear that there there was that that issue that that you were pointing out with with sort of Darwinism having um challenged the usual uh the usual kind of theological foundation for mm -hmm. for morality and so you have to re, re uh rebase it um and i i think that's something that like many people have argued that we actually have not succeeded in doing that like the modern mm -hmm. modern theories of morality uh, at least i find not very convincing uh in terms of they they appeal to a lot of um they appeal to a lot of stuff that that it feels very made up and and so it's like we're kind of i would say still grappling with this stuff but it's like it hasn't been moving for so long that it, it just sort of feels like assumed background now um but it's interesting like during the victorian era it was very much live mm. no that's, that's that's right i highly recommend that uh people look through some of the uh 19th century victorian history because uh this this sort of magical tradition actually extends further back uh, with the scientists to someone like, you know, Isaac Newton and obviously even before that. Yeah. But the difference in the 19th century is that it starts becoming totally unmoored from uh, Christian tradition. So Isaac Newton uh, would have done a lot of these experiments and, and uh, you know, thought experiments in the context of, of like biblical works in the Christian tradition. 19th century, they start doing things like uh, seances for practice, uh, and all sorts of experiments with weird psychic phenomena, 
uh, totally outside of, of the regular tradition. And, and this is probably, of course, influenced by the intellectual currents of, of Darwin and general moves away from that tradition among the intellectual elite. So I, I highly recommend uh, people look at the history there. It's super fascinating. Um, a lot of the, uh, you know, early scientists and inventors that we associate with a bunch of modern technology back to the 19th century, uh, you know, they're heavily involved in, in, in this sort of space. Um, and, and actually, I think that's generally true historically, is that a lot of the top scientists and inventors and thinkers tend to have uh, an unusually high interest in weird phenomena like this. Yeah. Um, so, Hannah, you were going to say something? Uh, yes, a couple of comments. So, so I, I think one um, characteristic of uh, the Victorian era that also comes across uh, is that um, um, so many things were changing. So all these really previously yeah, totally. unimaginable technologies were, were being developed, electricity, uh, X-rays, um, the wireless, I mean, uh, all, all incredible, incredible inventions. And um, uh, the basis of disease was being uncovered and, and new elements like radium uh, were, were turning up. And um, so it didn't actually seem that far-fetched that something like the afterlife could be scientifically explained. And, and, then, and yeah. then when the spiritualists started turning up, um, you know, what, what if they were right? And then, then, then you had uh, scientists like, like Crookes and, and Lodge actually setting up scientific experiments to, to and, and also an Austrian scientist called Zollner, uh, who, who probably did the most work with mediums trying to actually test their powers uh, scientifically using somewhat dubious experimental arrangements, I think, by modern standards, mm -hmm. but uh, definitely uh, being convinced himself that what, what he was observing was, was something real and could be scientifically explained. Um, I love your comments about Isaac Newton as well. Uh, there's, a, there's a nice little essay by Paul Graham, uh, the founder of Y Combinator, who, who points out that from Isaac Newton's point of view, the three things he worked on uh, physics uh, and mathematics, uh, theology, and um, and alchemy are 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 uh, well, from his perspective three things that are were, would all be huge if true. So uh, yeah. for him, it wasn't obvious which which was the, going to be the winning candidate. So he worked on all three. And um, uh, just to throw a little bit of a sci-fi reference there as well, uh, there's a very fun series of books uh, starting with by, by an author called J. Gregory Keyes, uh, starting with, I think it's called Newton's Canon, which uh, does this kind of Summerland style alternate world exercise, but starting with the idea that it's really Newton's inventions in alchemy that turned out to be the the thing that works the the big 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 thing and then then you end up with this really weird world of, yeah, of uh, al alchemical alchemically powered technology and and uh um uh so so that's uh it's a fun fun uh read. yeah and 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 so like getting back to the the history through all of this stuff like you, like you're saying f f with from newton's perspective it's unclear which of these things are going to be the big one? And then in the 19th century, so much is changing socially and in terms of theories of the world and everything, new technologies, uh, you know, society is being, is being, there's revolutions all over the place through, through the 19th century. Uh, there's lots of things changing. And, and yeah, it's just it, it, like everything's kind of up in the air and it's unclear where it was all going. And then through the early 20th century, you start to get the solidification of at least the physics 
um, and our, our sort of more modern physical worldview. And then, but I think like a lot of this, that, that fact of everything being up in the air also helped create the science fiction tradition. Cause that's like, people started playing with, all right, well, let's write stories about what, where this stuff could go. And that's where you get stuff like, um, you know, 20,000 leagues under the sea and, and so on coming. I think that's a uh, 19th century. Um, and very much in that like scientific, uh, milieu, which, mm. which is very Victorian. And then it sort of starts evolving from there through the weird stories phase in the early 20th century. And then into, you know, the golden age of science fiction and then, um, you know, space age type stuff. And it's all about like, okay, there's all this stuff changing. There's all these new things coming. Where's it all going to go? Let's sort of fire up our imaginations and, and, uh, try to make sense of it. And so it's, it's this interesting, like exercise of, of sort of almost like productive speculation. It's it sort of guised as entertainment. It is productive speculation of, of dealing with mm. this, these changes. Um, yeah, I, th I think that's an excellent summary, uh, of, of how things, things developed. Uh, I can't help, uh, commenting a little further on, especially on 20,000 leagues under the sea, because it's, uh, it's the book that, that got me, that was my gateway drug. That was one of the first Great. real novels I read, uh, probably when I was like six or seven, uh, which I, when I found it in my, my school, little school library, uh, in, growing up in Finland. Um, but, uh, no, I think, um, at the core of science fiction is the idea that the world can change that that there, there can be a radical fundamental change uh in in the world and then what the consequences of that are both both uh, globally and in, in human terms and um and i think that's uh, actually um the first modern example is probably frankenstein uh mary shelley, shelley. So, so that's 18 20 something uh where uh you 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 i mean shelley's right off the bat starts with the idea that that what if we could create life and um and, yeah. and I uh, actually really love the uh, message of the, the original um, Frankenstein novel because um, it's, it's often in, in modern retellings, it, it comes across um, as, you know, we should not meddle with these forbidden things. Like we, we are overreaching our, 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 our uh, uh, you know, our capacity or, or you know, we, we should not do um, sort of uh, try, try to be God. But in fact, that's not at all what, what the novel is about. It's, uh, so Shelley, Shelley's message is that, in fact, uh, we can uh, create um, uh, beings that, that start out actually superhuman. I mean, that's the, the Frankenstein monster is a superhuman creature in intellect and, and physical strength. And right. what uh, Victor Frankenstein fails at is taking responsibility for it. Uh, yeah. because he's so horrified by his own creation that he chases, chases the monster away. And then the monster becomes bitter and, and, uh, and, and, uh, sort of has nobody to guide him through the world. And, and then he starts acting out and, 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 and becomes destructive and, and takes, takes very, uh, sort of calculated revenge on, on Frankenstein. So, so, you know, in a way, I, I, I love the fact that that's, that's the, that's, uh, the message which already kicks off science fiction that we need to take responsibility for our our creations and be and and, and nurture them um and and uh, figure and understand what what are the consequences of of uh of creating creating yeah. things that that uh, really sort of uh mess with well but that that uh 
deal with the fundamental uh, constituents yeah. of life. Um, but um, but no, going going forward, I, I think the uh, Ver Jules Verne definitely then is in that that um, very techno optimistic uh, mode uh, in his in his early work, which is where where it's a very he's a very very much a product of the colonialist era where where it's all about it's all about mm -hmm. conquering the world with technology and um and he's definitely on the side of the colonialists <laughs> uh and yeah and, uh, well it, i mean in in 20,000 leagues captain nemo is always uh like captain nemo i think is like sort of vocally anti-colonial oh you, you're you're in no, that, no, sorry in, so that, in fact in, in fact you are absolutely right i think i think captain nemo is the counter example so actually spoiling Spoiling uh, the <laughs> sequel to Ten Thousand Leagues slightly, uh, um, uh, Captain Nemo is of course actually Indian. Um, so, so, yeah. so whose whose family has been killed by the English. So he hates the English with 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 a passion and and so, and, and supports supports uh, sort of indigenous people who rebel against the English and sinks English ships and so on. But but Captain Nemo himself though treats the sea as his colony. Uh, he, right. he, he, he's, um, there, there's this very strong idea in the book that, um, God has gifted humanity with all these things that we can go out and exploit. And, and, uh, and Captain Nemo does that very explicitly with, with the sea. Um, and, um, and it's, um, yeah. and it's, it's beautifully done. He's very ingenious in terms of all his, every, everything people, the, the crew of the Nautilus wears come from, comes from the sea. Like, like they have where these seal skin, skin jumpsuits and uh uh they make paper from from some some kind of seaweed and and every single thing yeah, every I, single thing is i remember the, yeah the the batteries are, mm. are made from some like the mined from the bottom of the sea or exactly there, there's uh so so there's uh, uh yeah Vern is a little little ambiguous on what how, how the batteries <laughs> exactly work but but yes there there it's definitely it's definitely ultimately from this undersea volcano that they they get so so the key elements needed yeah. to to make it work so um but um but yeah you know you're completely right i, I think i think that's uh uh captain nemo's character is an interesting interesting counter example to that where where Vern does show yeah. some uh some uncharacteristic to the era sympathies for for the the oppressed yeah. um but um, yeah my, mind you like like that was one of the big themes of the era right it, it was like looking sort of backwards on it we see a lot of this very rigid social hierarchy that that had existed before modern times but also uh looking at it going forward you see at that time really a lot of those ideas starting to take like a lot of the more modern ideas starting to take root at that mm. time again everything's up in the air people are like what does it all mean where is it all going people people are really restructuring their worldviews um uh, around that time and I, I i sort of like yeah and, and i i read uh i read um Twenty Thousand leagues sort of in that um in that light like when i was reading it 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 really struck me as like wow yeah they, these like a lot of the modern ideas i'd recognize them in this sort of uh larval form if you will uh at that time um no i mean Byrne had an incredibly prolific imagination and he um in some of his later books he's a little bit more critical about technological progress but uh especially now mm -hmm. today that we talk about so so um today we talk a lot about geoengineering but there's um uh there's a little known sequel to uh uh one of his other famous books from from the earth to the moon 
Um, so, so of course, in the, from Earth to the Moon, there's this uh, uh, society of uh, of uh, Civil War veterans called the the Baltimore Gun Club. The, these American American businessmen mm -hmm. who are completely obsessed with with guns, who who end up building this giant cannon that that uh, uh, launches this, this uh, vehicle to the to the moon. In, incidentally, from exactly the the location where where Cape Canaveral was later built. In, in Florida, right? Uh, because Fern's cousin was an astronomer who calculated where where it should be should be located. But um, but there's a uh, and I uh, I think it's called uh, I think I think it's the English title might be the Cataclysm or something like that. There's a, a sequel to From Earth to the Moon where the Baltimore Gun Club decides to build an even bigger cannon uh, to tilt the Earth's axis. To, to basically, oh, um, you know, uh, shift the Earth's axis so that the uh, that all the polar ice caps would melt and allow, you know, create create new land masses to be to be colonized, uh, and uh, uh, so so yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting that that Vern already uh, could envision this kind of radical radical geoengineering at the time. Yeah, I, ironically, I think it would happen the opposite. If you melted the ice caps, you lose. Land. Yeah, exactly, 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 exactly. <laughs> I don't think he quite worked worked that one out, but uh, I, I think the attempt fails in any case. The, 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 uh, so that that was then Bern transitioning into a little bit more of a skeptical mode on on the progress of technology, right? Uh, which and that 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 brings us to this sort of theme, uh, the theme of techno optimism versus sort of techno pessimism, mm. which you alluded to earlier, mm. and and that sort of changes through time in science fiction. Um, like in particular, sort of in the 80s, we start seeing a lot more of that, like pessimistic cyberpunk like um, themes that that uh, are like you were saying with with the modern interpretation of Frankenstein as these tales of like technology is the scary thing that we can't control and maybe we shouldn't go there. Um, and I, I find that interesting, like just how. Uh, how that's changed over time that that you get these waves of of pessimism and optimism yeah that's uh, there is definitely that oscillation and if we kind of go forward from the Verne era and, and briefly briefly talk about the golden age of science fiction uh there was a, yeah. there was a sometimes you have those modes also coexisting so um so i was actually at a science fiction convention uh a few weeks ago and we had a nice panel discussion on uh, H.P. Lovecraft and, uh, uh, yeah. and uh, the and what where, where so H.P. Lovecraft, in case your listeners don't know, uh, very famous horror writer uh, of the 1920s, yeah. 1930s, who who created who, whose core idea was that there are these incomprehensible cosmic horrors out there uh, that uh, are are so terrible that that to to even glimpse them briefly sh completely shatters human sanity and uh, and the universe is populated by these these ancient beings who who will crush us beneath their feet without thinking twice i mean uh, and and uh yeah. um and um so if you then contra uh, contrast that to uh space opera which is um 1920s 1930s 1940s we're going to go out there and we're going to uh create galactic empires and humanity will, will yeah. spread to the farthest corners of, of the universe. And, and, uh, you know, there will be these galactic empires with billions of planet of colonized planets. And, and, uh, uh, you know, we'll, we'll keep, keep expanding exponentially out into the universe. Um, both of those modes of writing may in fact be, uh, in response to, um, what the transformation that happened in science, uh, around the time beginning of 20th century, um, as we realized that, in fact, uh, 
19th century astronomers still believed that there were, you know, maybe a few thousand stars out there, uh, and that there was these little, there were these little things called called uh, uh, nebulae, that that uh, little 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 dots, uh, and nobody knew what they were. And then we have Edwin Hubble realizing that uh, they are actually galaxies, uh, other galaxies, and and they are not not right. just thousands of stars, but maybe thousands of millions, billions, or, or hundreds of billions, or thousands of billions of stars. And um, that Earth is not uh, just like 10 million years old, but, but billions and billions of, year, of years old. And um, so in, in terms of space and time, um, the universe expands by something like 20, 20, yeah, 20, 20 orders of magnitude. And, and so suddenly, <laughs> yeah, suddenly, got a yeah, lot suddenly it gets a lot bigger. And, and then, then humanity has a, has a uh, very minor role in it. Uh, so, so, so you can either, you know, shriek in terror like Lovecraft did at, at this realization, or, or you can try to come up, uh, uh, get, get somehow conquer it uh, as the space opera writers did. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so you can kind of, you kind of get, get these two things sometimes coexisting and um but yeah you're, you're certainly right that going uh, uh forward um people got less optimistic about technology i think world war ii certainly had had a lot to do with that and the threat of nuclear war and everything that came with, yeah. came with it um and then then we, we but go ahead sorry even after world war ii through the 60s and so on you get uh guys like clark and niven mm. and so on who who are quite and, and Heinlein, mm. actually, is post-war. Those guys are all relatively optimistic. That's true. Um, you you still have you still have this idea that we are going to solve these problems. There's this engineering can-do can-do attitude, and 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 I guess that's more generally there there in society. I mean, that is the era of the Apollo program and and uh, um, belief belief that uh, um, it, which is still still that same generation that uh, lived through. World War Two, and and uh, where of course we, uh, which which was largely won through through technology uh, as as well, even though it's led to these yeah these horrors, and, and that yeah. had a huge impact. The 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 atomic bomb had this huge impact on on um, science fiction, and then and then of course Apollo, um, you know, suddenly this this amazing idea that not only is it sort of this hypothetical fictional mm. thing that man could go to another world but man has actually been to another world that's right um and that yeah and that really opened opened up a lot of optimism but at the same time like i haven't actually like read that much from the 80s because of, of science fiction and like it it changed in character somehow there there mm. is this huge change in character like when i look at the books that i really like they tend to like end around the early seventies. Mm. Like the 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 stuff after that is just uh, somehow doesn't do it for me. And so something that definitely changes in how the how the stuff is. So 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 that's a fantastic topic, and and I and I want to to let's dig deeper into the eighties sci-fi. But just just because you because yeah. you mentioned the atomic bomb I, uh, and influencing science fiction, I, I can't can't help mentioning that that science fiction also God also seven. also in, no, no uh, yes, but sci, uh, <laughs> the the mutants the X Men. Um, but science fiction also influenced the atomic bomb in a very direct way. Yeah. Um, and um, so uh, one character who also appears in Summerland in fictionalized form is H.G. Wells, whom I'm, I'm actually incredibly fascinated by. And um, one of his lesser known books, um, apart from um, War of the Worlds and then The Time Machine and so on, um, is a little volume called The World Set Free, 
which he wrote in 1904. And uh, it features uh, a future war, which is eventually won by a group using uh, these explosive devices that are powered by radioactivity that are small enough to fit into a suitcase and that can be dropped from an airplane and, and, and destroy an entire city when they do. Um, and, uh, and he coins the term the atomic bomb. They're called atomic bombs. Right. Um, oh, interesting. And what, 19, what year 19, is that? 1904. Wow. <laughs> and okay, so you could uh, think of this as a coincidence, except that um, a Hungarian physicist called Leo Szilard uh, read uh, The World Set Free around, I, think, I believe, 1932, 1933, and then started thinking about the possibility of radioactivity-based explosives. And uh, a few years later, he invented the chain reaction, right? which then huh. resulted, resulted in him and Einstein, uh, his old friend, uh, teaming up to write a letter to Roosevelt, which um, then yeah, kicked, uh, off the Manhattan kicked off the Manhattan Project. And, uh, and Szilard knew H.C. Wells and they, they and was a big Wells uh, fanboy and, and uh, in, his, in his memoirs gives credit to Wells for directly inspiring the idea of the atomic bomb. Interesting. So with, with that, I want to uh, switch gears a little bit. Now that we know what your first science fiction book that really influenced you uh, was, it's, it's interesting because it sounds like, uh, you know, Jules Verne has been an influence on both Wolf and I as well. Uh, now I'm curious how you went from, from reading Verne at about six or seven to, to getting into the process of writing sci-fi. Um, yeah, so so I actually I, I really did. Uh, it's interesting. My my first encounter with science fiction really was Verne, and then then I then I stuck with Verne for a while. So I read all of Jules Verne that was available in in, in translation, uh, and then it was only after that that I moved on to H. G. Wells, and, and then slowly to to Asimov and, and Clark. So so it was the kind of I started out with very old very science fiction writer, very 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 linearly in time. But um, the transition to, to writing science fiction happened uh, through uh, a, a different medium, actually. So, so I, I grew up in this very small town in Finland of about ten thousand people, and um, uh, and I had a, uh, and I didn't have many friends. And at some point, I realized that uh, I could probably uh, get a group of people, uh, a group of classmates, excited about tabletop role-playing games, and I was mm. probably about ten or eleven. And um, and we we ended up uh, having having quite a, a an active group of friends who really 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 got deep into tabletop RPGs, uh, uh, not just Dungeons and Dragons, which obviously is the most most popular one, but um, many different kinds of tech games that were some of which were uh, more ambitious in terms of storytelling. Um, uh, also Cyberpunk, uh, Cyberpunk twenty twenty, which uh, right. we can we can come come back to. Um, and uh, and my <laughs> which is now cyberpunk which is now which is now it's uh, it's next year um and uh and today and 2019 is blade uh, blade runner of course yeah um but um so so my role was usually uh to be the game master uh who um sets up the, the world and and uh and essentially uh, creates the framework for the for the players and, and their characters to have have adventures in and um, and and I think that that's definitely helped me to develop a lot of lot of the same kinds of skills that you need as a writer. Uh, basic basic principles of storytelling, uh, maintaining suspense, uh, world building, and so on. And um, 
uh, and I kept at it um, uh, all the way through early years at university, and actually co-founded the, the role-playing club at my uh, at my university in Finland, University of Oslo. And uh, and then I lost touch with that community when I moved to the UK to to study theoretical physics and do my PhD. And um, and in Edinburgh, uh, as I started my PhD, I, I was looking for some kind of replacement for that creative outlet. And I initially mm -hmm. tried initially tried theater and uh, was involved in student drama for a while, uh, but then ended up stumbling into a um, uh, spoken word performance by a group of local writers, uh, which happened to include um, somebody whose, whose work I had, had read previously, Charlie Stross, um, who, uh, but actually uh, all, all the performers turned out to be fantastic. And uh, and then then I thought that this this is actually something I would really love to do um, to write write original fiction maybe perform it um, and um, and I ended up joining that group uh, stayed a member for more than ten years and and uh, sort of learned uh, probably everything I, I know about writing from from huh. uh, from that group so which which included uh, which then sort of had there were other other writers like Alan Campbell uh, who who came out of that group and and um, uh, many others who who haven't become like internationally famous, but but uh, are all extremely good. So um, so yeah, I think that that was roughly the the trajectory. So so RPGs were the gateway. Interesting. Drug. Yeah. Well, th this is th it's interesting. Like there's that that's sort of like an example of fantasy acting in this role. But science fiction and fantasy both have this interesting role as uh, inspiring creative and technical people to to kind of like uh to do big things like you often hear from many of the many of the interesting people that that you meet that you know they were originally inspired by by something in fantasy or science fiction that's sort of like this imaginative faculty uh gets going and they start thinking about the possibilities or they start sort of wanting to create and so on and and that I just find that really interesting that the, how how the whole genre um, plays plays that role and 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 ha and sort of like gives people that spark. That's I, I think that's a definitely very uh, important aspect of it. I, I think the, um, the you have have uh, examples like like the Wells and the, the atomic bomb. I think uh, a lot of people working in virtual reality now, I'll give a lot of credit to Neil Stevenson and Snow Crash. Uh, yeah. And, and speaking of cyberpunk, also also perhaps to a lesser extent, uh, William Gibson's Neuromancer, yeah, uh, which, Neuromancer. which has, has, has very vivid descriptions of cyberspace, which of course was a term that he, that Gibson coined. Um, and um, it's, um, th there is a long, long list of examples. I think uh, the Star Trek communicator is another one that seems to right. have had some influence in in how we how our mobile phones ended up being being designed, um, but I think it's um, people it's it's not obvious though how to consciously write science fiction to inspire people. It's it's often there, there have been efforts to you know Stevenson was involved uh, in something called the Project Hieroglyph that consciously set out to try to create these science fictional images that would inspire real life technologists. And, and, and I don't think this, that, that was very successful. The, I mean, it, it, it produced some good stories, but somehow the images or, or technological concepts they came up 
with were a little dry and, and not not necessarily that compelling. So so I, I think it, it, it there there the process might have to be quite organic that you are yeah. trying to tell a very compelling story and 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 uh, focusing on, on on some some human emotion at the core and then then as if by accident you 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 hit on this this image that that resonates with people and sometimes that can also come about through just like storytelling constraints my favorite example of that is that you know, one of one of these images or 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 concepts we strongly identify with star trek is uh the transporter the the teleporting yeah. system that everybody uses to beam beam down to the to the surface of planets and uh gene roddenberry invented that simply because they did not have the budget to show a shuttle landing in every episode <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and and now of course we have build people trying to um do quantum teleportation in the lab and and uh and, and so on so yeah build such um, things but um the um and i i've had experiences with this myself so uh so one 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 thing in um my first novel the quantum thief that real life technologists seem to find quite compelling is this uh concept called gevelot which is um it's like um privacy uh settings for reality um so there's a society called the oubliette where um everything is recorded by um sensors, ambient sensors, uh, including people's brain activity and thoughts. Um, oh, wow. but, there are but there are heavy privacy constraints uh, that allow everybody to control um, the access rights to, to their, their own data. And, and the, the, the framework that or, or the sort of software layer they use to manage those, those access rights is called Gevelot. And it's, it's so embedded in, into um, a brain computer, mature brain computer interface that is almost like having this extra sense uh, of uh, for privacy, privacy mm -hmm. sense sense um, that that you, you that you just have this feeling of okay, this is something that I, I'm happy to uh, allow others to share, and you can you can do it unconsciously. Um, and um, and I did not set out to to come up with an idea that that would somehow inspire people to to work on on privacy. But rather, um, as I mentioned, the quantum thief involves involves a gentleman thief um, and also has a detective character. I wanted to write a detective story, right. and and to write a detective story set in this kind of far future where you can pretty much assume that there is going to be sensory capabilities everywhere in the world, and and therefore, if a crime happens, it's going to be recorded, and therefore, solving the crime is going to be rather trivial. You just you just Google it, or 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 you, you just you Google who did it, uh, and um, so so uh, in order to get around that, I had to come up with a society that would would rank privacy higher than solving crimes as a, as a fundamental value, and uh, right. and would would then obviously have some kind of system for for managing it. So. Um, I guess my point is that quite often the most compelling science fictional images that end up um, shaping shaping the course of real life science and technology uh, and inspiring engineers to do crazy things don't necessarily come from a conscious attempt to to design some kind of desirable future, but but rather from uh, yeah, as, as a just... side side effect of trying to tell a compelling story that that uh, yeah totally technology yeah yeah I think I think that probably the method of uh, you know, science fiction via consensus or uh, two explicitly philosophical goals mm. uh, actually just results in bad fiction. I've read so many fiction books where uh, they were an afterthought of someone actually just wanting to tell a 
a message too aggressively. Right. right. And so what ends up happening is they will write these characters who are often, I find, teachers or professors, and they mm. have these long monologues in the book, <laughs> right? And it's just, you can tell that the teacher is just an avatar of the author, and so there's no real complexity or back and forth. It's just like, it would have been a nonfiction book, save for the fact that you know, he, they add, he said at the end, after the end of the <laughs> sentence, and it's, you know, supposed to be in someone else's mouth, but, you know, not your own. And so I find mm-hmm. those to actually be the most boring and lame kind of books. And yeah. you see that, you, you see that even a little bit in, in Ayn Rand, actually. Mm, um, yeah. Although I find, you know, some of her stuff is interesting, but, uh, you know, the, her, her dialogues or monologues rather can go on for pages and you can tell that that's just lifted out of her own philosophical works directly. Um, so, so right. with that, I actually wanted to, uh, just an interesting list of about 10 classics of, of sci-fi, uh, and see if I can get your one to two line impressions, uh, of each of them. I think that would be fun. That sounds, that sounds fun. Uh, let's go. So yeah, yeah let's start with, uh, Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. Um, so that's a, that's a very powerful book. Um, it's, um, it is obviously largely about child abuse and and there there are uh with a mo- it was something it was a book i i found uh very very compelling when i when i read it for the first time uh when i was quite young um and um rereading it now or i reread it a couple of years ago um i find myself questioning a lot uh, a lot of the underlying values a lot more than I did did back then on, on how, right. how essentially Carr seems to have the view that that world and history is simply shaped by these these uh, Ender or Peter or or Valentine like exceptional individuals and and uh, there's not much much of a role for for the rest of us um, but I mean it's certainly it's certainly a remarkable book I mean uh, full full of powerful powerful images I I, I still so we have nightmares of of the this uh, game that Ender 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 the psychological game that Ender plays, which involves That's like right. like this rotting corpse of this giant that he kills, and it's it's uh so so there's no no questioning the um, the artistry of, of of the book and and some of the the questions it, it poses, but um uh, and of course Card has 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 then uh, turned out to have have some rather extreme political and religious views, but then then there's always that question of should one separate the artist from from the work of art, and and to to what extent can we can we do that? Starship Troopers by Robert Heinlein. Um, that also is a bit like a political tract in in novel That's form. Right. Although yeah. although, yes. although Heinlein, Heinlein is such a good writer that he does manage to make it quite entertaining. Um, I I can't help wondering what he would have made of the Paul Verhoeven movie, which which subverts it in a very ingenious way. Um, uh, although, 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 I mean, you, 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 you still end up wanting one of those Starship Trooper battle suits. It's their Heinlein just describes them so well. I was yeah. promised, I was promised that by 2020 along with flying cars. <laughs> uh, I'm a little disappointed, but, uh, yeah, the, the idea of power armor has become very compelling and, yep. and ended up in a lot of places. Yep. Um, okay. How about, uh, Dune by Frank Herbert? Um, well, Dune, uh, is deservedly, uh, Considered one of the the great science fiction novels of all time, I think it it just uh, does a remarca- remarkable job with uh, with weaving together many many uh, fascinating characters and incredible world building and 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 this sense of uh, I, I think it just has 
tons and tons of uh, this kind of uh, quintessential sense of wonder that, that really defines defines science fiction. Uh, um, probably because, in a way, it is close to fantasy as well. It is it is it is a story of of the uh, the chosen one who fulfills his destiny, um, mm-hmm. but but in this in this um, in the science fictional setting. So um, yeah, I don't care much for the sequels, but uh, but certainly the original Dune stands out as as uh, one of the great sci-fi novels of all time. Okay, the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov. Um, so so again, um, uh, there were too many unnecessary sequels, but the the original Foundation trilogy uh, I absolutely loved. So so the um, and and Asimov also has one of the the most um, wonderfully compelling ideas, which uh, because I studied mathematics, I am especially fond of it, which is the idea of, of psychohistory, this this mathematical yeah. uh, mathematical science of predicting the future, averaging human behavior over over large populations, and uh, and and actually uh, even even um, one of the images that stands out, uh, this the people of the secret second foundation uh, have this device called. Uh, I think it. I think it's called the prime radiant, or 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 something like that, which is which is this um, little device that contains all of Sheldon's mathematical plan and all the all the sort of projections forward mm-hmm. how to how to create the second galactic empire. But it it can you you can essentially uh, use it to to visualize all these equations and then just with a thought uh, move around them. And it's just. Uh, I I wish we had that. That that would be that would be an amazing tool, not just for psychohistory, but for for physics or mathematics in general, this this uh, um, thought-controlled equation visualizer. Um, uh, I mean, Asimov, of course, is not the greatest uh, writer of all time in, in terms of his, his characterization and so on. But but I think he actually gets uh, he's actually better than many people give him credit for. I I, I do do remember um, a lot of the the characters actually actually being. Pretty fascinating, like uh, like the mule, for example, in, in uh, the second foundation. This this tragic mutant figure who who uh, yeah. who ends up upsetting Sheldon's plan and uh, and then has to be has to be dealt with. So uh, yeah, I think that there is just a lot lot in those books. I mean, that was really Asimov at, at the top of his game. Um, How about uh, and we've we've mentioned this briefly before, Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. Oh, that's fantastic. I I um, it it, uh, it has one of my favorite. Uh, novel openings of all time, where where um, you, you, you we, we it's uh, it's it's very much in that that sort of chrome chrome neon black leather uh, gleaming gleam, gleaming armor uh, cyberpunk cool mode uh, description of mm-hmm. uh, hero protagonist uh, and his supercar. Uh, I think I think it's described as the Deliberator uh, racing through through the city uh, armed to the teeth in in this in this uh, incredibly powerful powerful vehicle and and uh, and then so on to, on on a, on a crucial mission, and then 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 of course he turns out to be a pizza delivery boy, um, but <laughs> in big because in this world, uh, pizza deliveries are controlled by the mob, and and uh, and and, uh, and, and the, very important. Very, they very are very important. very and they are very very important. And if you if you if you fail to deliver on time, Uncle Enzo, the the Godfather, has to go and apologize to the to the customer in person, and you you don't want to. Uh, so, so that's a that's a, such an idea-packed book, and I and I think it, it is it, so. So, Snow Crash and the Diamond Age, I feel, are in terms of their their idea density, um, extraordinary and and uh, a bit more 
controlled than than some of the later Stevenson books. Although I, I mean I enjoyed his later later works as well. But uh, uh, but yeah, I think Snow Crash definitely in terms of ideas per page uh, is is up there uh, with with the most uh, most uh, inspiring piece of science fiction of all time. And and indeed has has uh, the the idea of the metaverse um has has been uh credited as as one of the major influences by by the oculus rift founders and and uh and right. still 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 is pretty readable as as a um kind of vision of of what what a fully mature virtual reality might be like um not not to mention not to mention all the clever ideas about uh programming the brain brain with with uh, ancient Sumerian language and all, all that. One of the uh, other ones I wanted to ask you about, which is, you know, a more recent book, and it's probably too early to say that it'll, you know, definitively become, uh, you know, a classic, but it has, I think, a pretty reasonable chance would be mm. you know, the three body problem by Lu Shan. Mm. Uh, I'm curious for your thoughts on that. So I, I haven't read the whole trilogy yet so 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 i probably i'm probably at a disadvantage to to fully assess it i, I did read the first volume and i and i did and i did enjoy it and and uh, it's I, I think what's really um fascinating about it is how how weird and different it is from from western science fiction or or how it how it mixes different subgenres of 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 western science fiction also plus adding some something of its own uh, I mean, it, it's on one on one hand, it's it's very Philip K. Dickian on on on, uh, uh, and and then then it's sort of all the um, chapters from the point of view of the the aliens are are, are really they they are almost like 1930s science fiction in in their in their crazy crazy love for for super science, uh, and then then in the middle you have this rather serious, beautifully beautifully written. Uh, Contemplation of the Cultural Revolution and uh, um, uh, and and one one person's journey journey through that. So uh, so I think that it does the sum of those things uh, uh, is more than more than the parts uh, on on their own. So so I think it's definitely um, uh, excellent that we can get uh, a unique voice like that translated into English by somebody like Ken Liu, who is such a such a great writer actually in his own own right. He has some wonderful short stories uh and uh and novels um so so i think that actually does highlight also the need to um embrace science fiction beyond the the uh, anglophone uh realm yeah. because because uh because there are I, I think there are many 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 uh many many, many sushin leaves out there in in other other languages too yeah and i i one thing i noted is i i read one of the interviews he did in the the new yorker and of course it was you know, in 2019, almost inevitable that there would be hard questions about, you know, China's role in, in Xinjiang with uh, mm. how they treat the local Uyghur population, mm. you know, the Chinese surveillance state in general, uh, and a lot of the ways that, that China does things quite differently than the West and that the West currently would consider to be strange or immoral. I mean, there are these deep value differences, and I'm curious for you know, your thoughts about, you know, connections between the Chinese sci-fi community and the community in the West and, and how writers on both sides are navigating that and whether Chinese science fiction, as it grows, is going to be a force that can, you know, reconcile these two different value sets or whether it's actually going to make them more, more distinct. Um, 
that's a super interesting question. I'm probably not well enough uh, familiar with, with the science fiction community in China well enough to truly answer that. Um, but um, it does occur to me that there's a, there's a very interesting analogy um, between, um, between China's Chinese science fiction now and uh, science fiction behind the Iron Curtain uh, during the Cold War, uh, where and one, one couple of figures that stand out there, uh, uh, for example, Stanislav Lem, who um, is, uh, I think, not at all as well known uh, in, in, in the West as he, he deserves to be. I mean, he, he really was one of the true, truly great science fiction writers of the 20th century. And um, if you look at his career, um, he started out writing these uh, future communist utopian space operas. Uh, which, uh, and if you look at something like The Wandering Earth, <laughs> like, uh, uh, which, which was based on a, a Sishin Liu short story, I think uh, you, you kind of see some, some of that uh, uh, same uh, attempt to, to, to cater to, to the, the, the kind of worldview of the, um, of the party. Uh, and, um, and then Lem went on to, to gradually become more and more subversive over time. And, um, and science fiction, uh, both in Poland and in Russia, became this, this expression of uh, dissent because you could project that dissent into, into worlds that weren't, weren't the, the sort of present, present day world, but, but something, something different. So, so I do wonder whether, whether that, that same thing will happen, happen in China, that you'll have quite a lot of work that, that plays sort of, plays sort of lip service to, to the, um, the kind of need to to appear to be be a good good party member and um, um, and and so on, but then then you'll 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 gradually get more and more subversive work work appearing, and it, it sounds a bit like that is happening in, in China. That that uh, they are, uh, and I and I haven't read read some of these authors. There was a recent Economist article that that actually listed quite a few that I've been meaning to to look up who 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 appear to be producing very very radical work. Uh, 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 in the sort of satirical mode, or, or even 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 more, much more radical than than Xi Liu and uh, the three body problem. So yeah, so that that brings like again uh, back to this imaginative faculty that that science fiction has by enabling sort of the ability to think about these other possibilities and especially these big grand kind of mm. possibilities that you can do with science fiction. Um, it there's inherently almost like a subversive element to it uh maybe, maybe not like necessarily but but somehow like uh it, it strikes me that the science fiction ideology if there is such a thing has never quite really been mainstream in the west either it's always had this this somewhat uh subversive um tinge to it in, in that like the the mainstream is 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 always been sort of more conservative technologically i mean um in terms of like how man is is relating to the world and how man is relating to the future and so on um and, and science fiction has been this outlet for other ways of looking at things and i it's just like it's interesting on and in that regard again f again it's this imaginative faculty that really fascinates me that that enables us to kind of think of these other possibilities but i think that it's connected to um like even in the west you see recently some um 
we have seen some like political squabbles around science fiction, uh, but like what kind of themes are going to be present in it. And I think it's because it has that very powerful ability to kind of like define how people are, are thinking about the future. And so it's like, you know, in China, obviously, so you're going to have the, whether the science fiction goes this way or that is sort of, you, you expect that to have an effect on things. And, and I think you actually have likewise in the West that, that, it enables us to think about ideas that aren't the current way of things. And there's actually multiple kind of things we could imagine there. And, and you see these sort of fights between them. Um, yeah, I think, I think there is something very powerful about um, the, this process of taking a present day issue and projecting it into, into um, either a different world or, or, or uh, a, a possible future or an alternate world. Um, there's a, um, if I translate it from Finnish, uh, a, a very gifted author in Finland, Anne Leinonen, um, has a word for this process uh, uh, called strangifying. So making making things strange to understand them better. So uh, if we want, hmm. to, so so um, you know, taking issues like like gender and doing like what Ursula Le Guin does in the wonderful Left Hand of Darkness, imagining imagining this uh, world where uh, it's it's not a not a constant thing and 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 uh, uh, and works very very differently from from um, the way it does in our world. But by going through that exercise, we we start to see some of the things we take for granted in in uh, in our world and and how they perhaps could be different. So yes, I think that mm -hmm. is fundamentally fundamentally political and subversive. It does tend to the 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 most powerful uh, works of science fiction do do tend to to um, um tackle the core of human identity which is at the core of uh many political questions as well of course so yeah i mean that's that's always that's always like any political order is inherently based on some conception of the human being and human society and so on and and science fiction does allow this uh this examination of that in a a way that um isn't necessarily bound by all the usual controls, like in particular the control on like whether it's true or not, uh, which, which um, often is sort of like aside from good imaginations, uh, if you know what I mean. Like like to to be overly worried about, um, well, there's there's just like all these all these things that like normal thought gets gets breaked in these various ways, and then the speculative fictional thought is is sort of much more free to kind of reimagine mm. humans and human society. Um, exactly. Uh, I I always uh, also found it um, interesting that as you say, science fiction has been on the fringes, and uh, and quite often, mm -hmm. like if we if we look at the, I mean, may, maybe maybe actually the. Um, origins of science fiction are an exception to that. So, so Frankenstein, Mary Shelley was hanging out with with Byron and uh, and and uh, the other the other Shelley and and and, and so on. But uh, already Jules Verne, all of that was was in these popular in these uh, from a publisher who focused very much on popular entertainment. You had the Penny Dreadfuls in the nineteenth century, and then you had the pulp magazines in the uh, in the nineteen thirties and nineteen forties. Um, and uh, and the, the kind of cheap paperbacks uh, throughout the 50s and 60s. So so in terms of the publishing world, science fiction was already also also on the fringe and, and usually and even now still uh, looked down on uh, a little bit by by mainstream mainstream authors.
Um, but I think that's actually part of what gives it, gives it this energy, this, this uh, courage or, or freedom to, to be, be more experimental because you are... Well, it's, it's not official. It's not official. This is, it's, it's okay to, 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 to kind of do, do really experimental things on, on, this, on this fringe, fringe thing that, it, that is not the... Uh, yeah, you, you don't have to, to cater to, to the standards of the so-called literary establishment if, if there is such a thing. Those, uh, uh, and, and sometimes you get these interesting clashes between, between the two. So uh, recently, Ian McEwan, the, the, the uh, author of Atonement, um, wrote uh, uh, what is probably, I haven't read it yet, but it seems like it's actually a pretty good science fiction novel, Machines Like Me, about an alternate world where Alan Turing survives and ends up creating androids and, 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 and so on. Uh, but he, he made a comment in a Guardian interview that, uh, oh, I've written this book, which is not science fiction because it's, it's, it's about the human condition and not about, not about jet boots in space. Uh, and, uh, uh, there, there was, there was a collective groan across the, uh, internet, uh, obviously, and, uh, quite a fierce backlash, backlash at that. But, uh, but I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm, I'm quite proud to, to embrace the pulpy roots, roots of, uh, of science fiction and, uh, and, uh, stay on the fringe. So one thing I'm, I'm interested, a couple, a couple things, actually, would there be a particular direction you'd like to see sci-fi go is the first question. And then the second, um, what's your favorite example in science fiction of high quality technical speculation? Mm, those are great questions. Um, I think, um, so, so first of all, it's, 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 a, it's an interesting question actually, because I, I, um, I recently, uh, co-edited, uh, uh, an anthology called New Voices of Science Fiction, which is coming out of uh, Tachyon Publishing uh, quite soon. So that's co-edited with uh, Jacob Wiseman. And we try to look at exactly this question of, of uh, the new, who are the new voices and, and what are they doing? And um, uh, and I think they uh, what unified a lot of the uh, really interesting stories in that collection uh, was uh, this kind of useful energy of uh, coming coming from and, and many different uh, non-white non-anglophone uh, perspectives. First of all, so so I think going back to what I said earlier about finding finding other Shishin Liu's, so so finding finding uh, perspectives and voices that are not just the, the standard standard white uh, white male. Male one, and, and I think that that the collection highlights pretty well what what that can that can provide, um, and um, and I think um, the other thing would be embracing complexity. So traditional science fictional mode is the uh, spec or the traditional mode of science fictional speculation is the um, this thought experiment of let's change one thing and see what happens, uh, but with the increasing complexity of our world and, and these wicked problems like like climate change uh where or or the way um our technologies are all now interlinked and changing all at once um it's it's much harder to do that so so i think actually taking that head on in, in, in science fiction and and uh and trying to create these these complex worlds where 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 we have a more systemic approach on what what these these worlds and future futures look like. I, I think uh, he's not a new voice, but but I, somebody who's a master of that, contemporary master of that, is Kim Stanley Robinson, um, who who does it extremely well in his Mars novels and also also his uh, subsequent subsequent books. Um, 
technical ambitious technical speculation in in science fiction um trying to think of um recent recent examples but let's i i i haven't mentioned haven't yet mentioned one of my favorite science fiction books of all time um which i think does speculation on on such a grand scale that it's uh even even now it's hard to think of any examples that come even close which is Olaf Stapledon's The Star Maker, uh, which okay, is, I, haven't, I haven't read that actually. Which which is uh, it's a very remarkable book. It's from um, it's from 1930s. I want to say 1932, but uh, could be wrong. But thereabouts, and um, and it's this nar- breathtaking narrative that spans uncounted billions of years, with pretty much the entire universe and beyond as the as the main character. With this escalating scale, uh, I mean, it starts with it starts with um, you know the single human perspective wandering through the universe, encountering alien species, and, and observing their development, and then it just uh, it's it's actually impossible to describe how how, how the scale scale goes up and up, and um, and uh, and it, it, you can open Star Maker pretty much at random on, on a page, and you will have enough ideas on that page for for a science fiction modern, modern science fiction trilogy. Uh, and uh, and you you um, uh, you will find Dyson spheres without before way before Dyson Dyson invented them. You, you, uh, the, the, the sort of world world minds and alternate laws of physics and and uh, uh, sentient stars and, and it just goes on and on. And um, so so I'm not saying that's necessarily rigorous technical speculation, but but I think um, I, I think leading into imagination usually leads to to the kinds of ideas that are uh, more long lived than trying to be technically very rigorous. Um, there's uh, I mean, it's of course, like it's easy to afterwards point to to uh, the the examples that turned out to be realistic or, or real. I, I think like one that comes to mind was that, uh, you know, uh, one of Heinlein's uh, young adult novels like have have spacesuit will travel has a spacesuit which is pretty much exactly like the Apollo moon suits only only 10 years before before they were actually actually made but uh, but I kind of um, but for I, I think for me the the uh, really far-reaching impressive speculation is really about uh, probing the outer limits of what kinds of minds could there be what kinds of viewpoints could there be as as, as we we approach the law, limits set by laws of physics with our technology, and and uh, and think of things in in really cosmological timescales. And I think uh, Stapledon probably does that better than anyone anyone ever ever has. And and it's uh, actually um, uh, I had a conversation with Anders Sandberg recently on uh, from from uh, as a philosopher philosopher and uh, and and like general polymath uh, from from uh, the the um, Institute for existential risk I, I probably get it wrong in oxford and we tried to think what would uh, modern stapledon look like and we just couldn't really come up with anything that could go beyond what he already did so so there we are and now time for the uh, most obvious but necessary question of all time if you had to pick one or two sci-fi books of what you would want the future to look like what would those be and it can be in whole or in part um I think that's an easy one, actually. Uh, I'd like to live in Ian Banks's culture. Hmm. Um, okay. So, so, so it's um, um, 
if, if your listeners aren't familiar, this, uh, so in, in, in M. Banks, uh, as, he, as he wrote all his uh, space opera novels, has created this wonderful utopian future society called the culture, which is uh, where you, there are really no laws. There's just good manners. There is no money because, because it's so post, post scarcity that, you know, if you want, you can have your own planet. Um, which is secretly ruled, or not so, not even so secretly ruled by uh, these super intelligent AIs called minds that don't really so much rule, but sort of nudge things in in the right direction every now and then, and and uh, uh, there are really really sort of little little constraints to to what you can you can do. So it is this post post uh, uh, scarcity anarchist communist. Uh, it's hard, hard post everything everything utopia really uh which uh has always sounded to me like like it'd be a great place to actually live in or 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 banks actually makes it makes it sound like that so so um the culture could be could be a pretty fun fun place now in terms of in terms of writing science fiction we've talked a little bit about that and and how you came to write science fiction in the first place i'm i'm curious because you have a you know a research process that you follow when you know writing books like Summerland, what does your, your technical writing craft look like uh, when, when engaged in the process of writing? Mm. No, I think, I think uh, general approach to, to writing uh, across, across everything I do, both, both uh, in the startup context and for fiction, is similar. So, so I, um, I, I am definitely an outliner. So, so I, I do, do like to um, think quite a lot before I actually actually write write anything uh, I draw mind maps I, I use little sticky notes I do like to use analog tools in the early stages of the process as much as I can just because it's it's less less distracting um, and uh, you know I collect little facts factoids on on sticky notes and, and put them up everywhere and then then eventually cluster them into into patterns and and, and try to see commonalities and uh, usually the themes and ideas then then emerge from that. Um, and, um, you know, then I doodle for a while. So, so, uh, sketch out, uh, take, take a, usually I take like a big, um, artist sketch pad size, size thing and, and draw mind maps of that. Um, and, uh, at some point I, I, I then, uh, feel like there's, there's a critical mass and I write a first draft. Um, and, um, so that's usually. Uh, I often do that by hand as well, actually. So I have a favorite fountain pen, and I like writing writing longhand. Um, and uh, and I try to get a very quick first draft out, uh, just just uh, very quick and dirty, um, something that I can, that I can again then then edit, and then then I edit edit quite a while. So 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 I like to to hone 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 prose uh, uh, to un until it sort of sort of has all the unnecessary parts parts removed and. Um, uh, but yeah, that's probably that's probably the process. So so this initially this organic accretion of 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 ideas, looking for patterns in them and putting them in sequence, then a quick quick first draft, uh, ideally without using a computer, uh, and then editing, which usually then does involve end up involving a computer, um, and um, yeah, um, that's it. Well, um, I love talking about sci-fi. I love reading sci-fi because. You know, it, it is, and and you're doing this as well. It's it's similar to entrepreneurship in this in the way that in the sense that you're, you know, imagining future modalities, the way that things could be, and and those are very connected sort of things as, as well as philosophy in general. And, 
you know, we do a, a combo of, of all of those things at, at Palladium. So it's always good to, to talk to someone who, who thinks in, in sort of like methodologically thinks in, in similar ways. Uh, so I want to thank you for, uh, for joining us. No, thank you so much. This has been uh, super fun. That's been uh, the Palladium Podcast, episode 14. Thanks, everyone, for, for joining us, and uh, we'll, we'll see you next week.